Yeah, the wilderness or the attraction to wild food really came about connection. Um, and again, the challenge, like, like I kept saying, I'd love to learn and I love to challenge myself. So the connection and the desire to be part of that system is the thing that's drawn me to it. Um, and the sense of feeling is the big one. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. The nature of the hospitality industry has meant professionals could travel the world and explore and learn new techniques, cuisines, and discover new ingredients. Some chefs spend their careers in one location, one city, or a town in order to master their craft. Others buy the ticket and take the ride to find a greater connection to the land and sea. David Moyle is the Chief of Food for Harvest, Barrio and Sparrow Coffee in Byron Bay. David, how are you? I'm great, thanks, Huck. How are you? Good. You're a bit of a nomad. You've been travelling <laughs> all over Australia for your career. It's hard to keep up with all of the different things that you do. What, what sort of drives that, that will to sort of move and take on new challenges? Uh, I'm not entirely sure. I think... Um, I guess the way I, well, opportunity, I guess, is probably the main thing. Um, And the way I look at stuff, I suppose, is not to um, apply the same um, uh, solution to any problem, if that makes sense. So I kind of enjoy being in different places and trying to look at what would work in those areas, not only just from, you know, from the cooking perspective, but from the business itself. So, yeah, in regards to that, I guess that's probably been the main driver for where it's taken me to different places, well, in Australia specifically. Um, you have been a part of uh, restaurants in um, cities, particularly Melbourne, but a real key feature of your career has been a connection to the sea and the land, and you did that a lot in Tasmania and you do that up in Byron Bay as well. How, how important is that for what you do uh hugely um and even more so i didn't really realize um i guess in early days how important that connection was to me i grew up in a coastal town um around a a pretty well solid fishing industry at the time um and i guess trained and learned in in cities because that's where the that's where the, the skill base is for a lot of that um but then straight away I wanted to get connected to the, the product again um, or maybe it's just, I don't know, you're just constantly reminded by it when you're out in those areas, so it's sort of more, um, more rural areas, I guess. So yeah, I'm, I'm only just realising now how important it is to me and it's actually becoming more so. Um, not that you can't get those connections in the city, not at all. Um, it's probably just trying to find a balance, I guess, between you know spending some time in the cities and developing um, different businesses, but then also um, you know retooling up on on your your. I mean, the the wild, the wild stuff or the wilderness has been the the real driving factor of the last few years for me. Yeah, I want to dig deeper into that because I find it quite fascinating and your exploration of that has been inspiring to watch from afar. But you mentioned that you grew up in a country town of fishing um, port. Mm. What led to a career in food for you back then? Uh, It's not a super romantic story, to be honest. It's um, 
I was always interested in cooking. Like I enjoyed cooking for my family and um, my I was at a bit of a sort of, not a loss, but, you know, that pivotal point when you're 17, you're going to go to university, what are you going to study? Um, and I took a, uh, like a work experience position effectively with my brother-in-law who was working within the Marchetti Group in, um, in Melbourne. And I had no idea of the industry and um, what it is, what it looks like. And I got addicted to, I guess, the big thing that everybody gets addicted to in, um, uh, in, in that element is, is the, you know, the camaraderie, the, the challenge, um, pushing yourself, um, learning skills that are completely foreign. These are not things that, you know, I, I was born doing or I, I don't know, like the, sort of the idea of finding your knife skills is probably not a life skill that you see unless it's part of your industry. So, yeah, I, I very much got drawn into that. So I didn't, you know, grow up wanting to be a scoffier. It's not, you know, it's a, I didn't see my life in commercial kitchens. Um, but I was very much drawn to that. And the, the skills that are learnt um, the whole way through and how much it's about, you know, the self-discipline and the challenging yourself to learn more while being surrounded by people, is, it, it's pretty, um, um, I don't know, it's... You can see how it draws you in. Um, so, yeah, that's that's how I got into it, I suppose. The early days you were, as you mentioned, with Bill Marcati at, at the Lantern and that you worked at the Stoke House as well with Maurice Esposito. Do you, do you have any stories of those days and sort of how transformable it was for you? Yeah, I mean, I guess that was not showing my age, but that was, let's just say it's early 2000s. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but... I mean, yeah, I guess it was it was in the heady old days of anything goes and I was very much working over um, the hours that uh, <laughs> are responsible um, and it was very much a trial by fire. Um, it's just, you know, I guess I can't speak for every kitchen but it's, it's, there's a lot of... Um, uh, there's a lot of help and coaching and there's a lot of camaraderie and team and so on but there's also a huge amount of pressure and um, you know sort of challenging each other in order to to achieve what you need to um, it's almost like you're under-resourced intentionally and that that sort of um, I don't know the test I don't know what comes from that specifically but it's it's a real challenge and it, it, it gets pretty primal. Um, there's no real stories. Like I just, uh, I, to be honest, I was pretty well um, trained and, and very, very well looked after, even though, you know, I see those hours as being completely punishing, but I didn't feel as though um, uh, I was being used in any way. Like a lot of that's my own choice in order to learn and, and so on. But um you know, there's, there's, there's definitely um, a lot that comes from doing that for, for myself. I saw that I got a lot out of it myself. Um, so, yeah, but it was definitely in the old school times and, um, you know, I had I was lucky enough to be cooking one-on-one -on -one with Bill Marchetti at the time at the Latin and just some of the really simple things that I had to do over and over and over, and over again, um, which had nothing but... An absolute pain in the ass when you look at them now, but they're like they're just such a absolute um, foundation of cooking. 
you know, like just the, the, the eggs, the, you know, bringing garlic to light brown, bringing, um, you know, your heat management and all these seemingly simple things that you sort of take for granted as an older cook. Um, and, you know, like you're trying to bring those things into recipe writing because I contribute for the Saturday paper and even just writing recipes for the, um, for, um, for the businesses, uh, trying to communicate all those subtleties in a recipe of the things that you just take for granted in, in, um, in training, uh, well, being that I was provided with that training, um, is, is a difficult thing to not just um, dismiss, you know. You just sort of forget about all those little small things that you've, um, you've just taken as for granted as a skill that you know, people would have as a subset with, with cooking. That early on foundation that you built led to your first head chef role under Andrew McConnell, and that was way back at Circa, the Prince, and he's obviously gone on to be one of Melbourne's most influential and and you as well. What, what was it like working with him in that role? Oh, it was nuts. Yeah, that was that was like twenty five. I look back, you know, on some of the photos. It's hilarious. I look like a completely different person, but. Um, yeah, I was literally 25 and or 26 and in charge of a brigade of, you know, 18 to 20 cooks. Um, not cooks, which like the kitchen was full of like hyper talent. It was ridiculous. You could form, you know, six fantastic restaurants out of the people that we had in there. In fact, I think, you know, pretty much everyone's gone on to do their own, um, you know, be in their own head chef role or come from that. Um, so, you know, if I wasn't getting a result from the talent that I was surrounded by, then I'm a bloody dickhead. But um, <laughs> I, I was lucky. Like, we just sort of, I guess it just drew. It was almost like, timing-wise, it was almost like that sort of, it's such a, uh, a, a great um, uh, restaurant that felt like it was from a different time as well, um, in, in a way. Um, and there was a real, there was a real change at the time, I guess, when that was, what was that, 05 to 07, 08, thereabouts, where there was a big change in the industry, um, and it felt like that first big part of the shift. Um, but yeah, being a 25-year-old guy and in charge of that much talent was, was pretty interesting. And I'm not a yeller, like I don't, um, uh, yeah, I, I haven't got that old school presence of you know, stand out the front and screaming at everybody. It's I've got a much more passive management technique. Um, but I was so lucky to be mentored through that with, with Andrew. And as as I said, having the talent that was in the kitchen made it relatively easy looking back. But um, creatively, that was interesting. That was the part where I started... Um, yeah, look, I was pretty sure of myself at that age, I guess is probably the best way to put it. That sort of... You know, I worked really hard, but also there's a fair bit of ego involved with that sort of thing. <laughs> so, um, you know, having even looking back, having the the balls to put on your own food around those people under the guidance of somebody like Andrew, who allowed a lot of autonomy, um, um, was yeah, it's, it's it's pretty interesting when you look back on it. You ventured up to Byron Bay for the first time for a couple of years at the Pacific Dining Room and that sort of triggered the sort of movements you made around the country uh, to regional areas. Tell us about that period of time, what led to you to move up there? Uh, two things. There was 
there was an opportunity to, you know, like with the restaurants that I'd trained in and worked as head chef under, um, the concept was set. Um, so the space is designed, kitchens exi- existing, you're building a team around something that sort of has already been designed and set. And you're working within the confines of that. Um, Pacific Dining Room was my first opportunity with the Van Handles to sort of, I don't know, maybe drive a concept or uh, that's an area that I became more and more interested in and still are, um, is, you know, what does the kitchen look like in order to, or what's the menu look like? How are we going to operate? We're on a beach, we're next to a pub. Um, you know, what's, what's going to fit in that environment? Um, and at that stage, I was more and more and more connected to producers and really, really being excited about being able to do that. Um, but, you know, having the reality of a, a relatively large dining space to keep up with. So, I mean, just to move up to Byron Bay was um, after, you know, 12 years of working extreme amounts um, and to have some sense of a lifestyle of being able to surf again, even if it's, you know, just an hour before you go to work makes a massive difference to your headspace. Um, but yeah, that was, so I think I'd, I was up here for four years at that period. Um, and I guess it led to the desire to keep, I hate the term creating as far as like, you know, um, you know, developing dishes. It's not so much about that. It was more um, creating and trying to um, expose myself to different environments and you know, like like I said, that sort of Rubik's cube of what a restaurant um, can look like and what you're trying to achieve out of it. Um, yeah, you did ama- many amazing things in Tasmania and really made a name for yourself um, with many projects down there. T- tell us about your connection with Tasmania and the the sort of uh, experiences you had there. Uh, Tassie started. I was supposed to be there for six months, um, but turned out to be there for six and a half years. Uh, it's funny is to be honest, it, it, again, still following the same path as what I am now anyway, but, um, just that deep dive directly into what we're serving. Um, I guess I went in there to look as at a business, um, which was Peppermint Bay and trying to yeah see what it needed and for me it was a big part of it was the culture in the kitchen um and just trying to get some um some you know local you know get the sort of can opener away and try and really work with what's what you're surrounded by um and that funnily enough led to so i opened the stackings which was like a little 25 seater within that just as a as a vehicle i guess to be able to enable some more interesting stuff in Tasmania that wasn't being shown as pre- prevalently in, in restaurants, I guess. Um, you know, a lot of it's getting exported, but it's not really being used there, particularly in the restaurants um, at the time. Uh, so I saw it as a bit of a, a, a I don't know, a um, bit of a testing ground, I guess. Um, it was literally me and one other person in the kitchen and a couple of people on the floor. And it's just one of those situations where you're just like, like fuck it what do you got to lose like there's no you can actually push it not push it as much as you want i don't want to be you know absolutely challenging everybody and what they're eating but i just it felt a lot more like i'm cooking a large dinner party every night um and i really 
that was for me, to be honest. That was purely for me. That was um, not from an ego sense, but more for just like getting some enjoyment back. Um, and it, yeah, it got a fair bit of um, attention, I guess, maybe because of the, all those reasons that I wasn't really looking for, um, uh, you know, like reassertion of what I was doing was right. It was just more that I just wanted to have a bit of feeling and sense of feeling about what I was doing again. So that was the stackings. And then from there with the same guys, we opened Franklin. So with the same um, business owners, I, we had a space in, um, uh, they'd bought the, the Mercury, um, the old newspaper uh, printing space and we sort of redeveloped into there and put a uh, pigeonhole bakery in and designed a restaurant space that, um, again, I wanted to be really just kind of very pared back and um, just celebrate the stuff that I enjoyed about about Tassie um, and really showcasing those, those interesting elements that exist down there. Um, you know, there was nobody serving abalone, but you know, one of the first memories of Tasmania for me was moving into this this um, a property, and and the neighbours who I'd met once before, the day I moved in, you know, like often you might get a a, a casserole or a massacre or something left on you, you know, they'll rock up and howdy neighbour, welcome to the neighbourhood. I had two abalone hanging on the door handle. Wow. Yeah, it's just nuts, it's bonkers, and you sort of start to see why. Um, you know, everybody eats like that there because that's, you know, you, the, the culture of going to dive for your own crayfish or you go and you dive for abalone. And, but, you know, you're going to pay the market price in a restaurant? No, because I can just go get that myself. But I just saw it as an opportunity because there's a lot of people who want to experience that, haven't got the privileged position to be able to do that themselves. So I, I served a whole abalone at, at Franklin. And charged, everyone just was like, it's insane. People aren't going to pay that. Of course, we were selling like selling eight to ten whole abalone in a night. Wow. Yeah, just because you, you you forget how much people want to experience, like from an outside's perspective, it's like you, you, you pay for those experiences because that's what you're there. That's why you're there. Um, you know, when the, <laughs> the guys who are living there have, they're sitting in the greatest restaurant every night because they're in their living room overlooking Mount Wellington or the water or everywhere's got a, a view, um, drinking some great, you know, there's some excellent ciders and wines and and easy access to um, locally grown produce and, you know, the the wild collected seafoods. So, you know, like everyone's got their own great restaurant in their dining room. So yeah, it was it was an interesting interesting time. Franklin was championed as one of the leaders of that new wave of dining and evolution of food and restaurants in uh, Hobart and Tasmania across the board. What was it like being part of that and seeing the evolution? It's, it was quite a fast evolution of some really amazing venues um, popping up there. Yeah, look, it was intense. Um, you know, the scrutiny, I think, is, is, is an interesting one. That's sort of ultimately the thing that, that, that wears you down that comes with doing things like that. But, um, you know, there's, there was several other restaurants that were uh, in, that, um, in that arena. There was, uh, there was all really prompted by Mona, I guess, as far as um, 
being able to support it and having uh, people come down that are prepared to or, or are looking for that sort of thing. Um, and there was a huge amount of support, you know, of course from the locals, but, um, uh, you know, that, that alone isn't going to be enough to get that style of restaurant through. Um, and so, you know, with Garage East and, you know, it became a little community of, of lots of industry people, um, both front and back, that are pushing, not with idealism behind it, but just some expression behind it and genuine care. Like we're talking about, you know, you're not talking about somebody who's just been cooking for four years. You're talking about a bunch of people that have been in the industry for 20 before they even start to look at doing these things. And there's like, there was a real maturity, I thought, in that movement down there. Um, real intent. It wasn't sort of an opportunistic moment other than the fact that it could exist. Everyone was down there with, with intent. Um, and it drew a whole bunch of people together that's still going, you know. It's, it's, it's ongoing. It'll kick again after um, in time once that's enabled again. But... Um, yeah, like it's it. I would I wouldn't say it's exciting because you're not sitting there pumping each other's tires up. Everyone's, you know, we're relying on each other's um, being around to, for sanity. You know, like there's that sort of camaraderie around. You know, we, if you're in Hobart and you finish service at twelve o'clock, you can't just go to the the local um, bar and you know like sit there until six o'clock in the morning because there's nothing open. <laughs> So, you know, we just found different ways to be able to support each other in that um, and, yeah, created a really interesting um, industry there, which is really unique to the, to, to the state, I think. You ended up leaving Franklin and Annalise Gregory stepped in and unfortunately it closed last year. Has it, has it left a hole, do you think, in Hobart? What sort of uh, impact do you think that's had? Uh, yes and no. I wouldn't underplay the importance of it. I think it's I definitely um, see it as being an important site, but you know, no more than any other restaurant that's existed. Um, uh, I don't know if it's a, I don't know if it's a hole or if it's a space for people other other people to move into, or if it's you know things change and morph, and maybe that can't exist anymore. Maybe it's a different model. Um, and I think, yeah, I, I, I don't know, like extremely proud to have been such a, you know, like integral part of it. But um, at the same time, not, um, I don't know, it's like a relationship. <laughs> you can't just sort of keep, um, you know, as a restaurant, if it's if it's a time and that's what it needs to be, then that's what it needs to be. And if it, if it means that other people can move into that area, like, you know, you can't crowd that market too much, but... Um, if there's other people that are able to operate in that area, then that's a bloody great thing. Um, so hopefully, you know, years to come, I'm really curious to see what happens in the industry anyway. So I'd love to, love to see the evolution of all this. Well, a huge part of your evolution as a chef has been wild food. Tell us a bit about that and, and the sort of journey that you've been on. Um, I think it became a real separation between, because it's funny, like I see wild Food is a privilege, not a necessity, not a, um, to use the term, sustainability. Um, you know, we can't all go out and catch, you know, spear a bluefin tuna or, uh, you know, it's not, it's not sustainable. Um, but 
for me, the I spent my entire career, you know, getting meat out of packets, um, and I had never really, you know, I'm a I'm a country guy, but you know, I wasn't unless you're growing up on a a, a sheep station, you're really not seeing that much death, you know. So for me, my animal empathy is the big thing that drew me into the wilderness, which sounds really funny because you're challenging that more every time you go out. Um, but yeah, the wilderness um, or the attraction to wild food really came about connection. Um, and again, the challenge, like like I kept saying, I'd love to learn and I love to challenge myself. Um, so the connection and the desire to be part of that system is the thing that's drawn me to it. Um, and the sense of feeling is the big one. Um, you know, people talk about creativity in, in cooking as though it's like you're some fucking wizard putting together flavors and, you know, everyone's is in awe of your ability to put together flavors, which is, I see it as utter bullshit. Um, I love the sense of feeling that you get from that creativity of, of dealing with a, um, a product and having the skill set and base to be able to, you know, like um, uh, the hunting thing's been a big one for me for the past couple of years. But to then apply the skill set that I've had as a chef and dealing with breaking down whole animals and looking at, indig in, at individual cuts and looking at them differently and looking at the handling of it and applying that skill to that is has been fascinating for me. And it's not something I see as being a it's ridiculous because it's so not a commercially viable model, but it's it's informing everything for me. So I'm not going to say that the only way to, um, the only restaurant I want to have is using all wild caught animal or proteins or, you know, harv you know uh, foraged um, greens and, and so on. I believe in the agricultural system, but um, I think it, it informs it as well. It makes it... Um, uh, it gives you a different viewpoint, I guess. Has there been a standout sort of hunting or uh, harvesting experience for you along this journey? Uh, to be honest, there's been more failure than success for me particularly because um, I, I tend to surround myself pe with people that are really good at it, which does two things. It, it means you get successful, but it also makes you feel like an absolute darrow. Um, <laughs> oh, just just hopeless but um, uh, definitely getting better there's been um, oh, just extraordinary circumstances Just I literally just came back from one two days ago was down in Holbrook with a um, guy who I hunt with regularly is Mark Lebroy. Um uh, I think he's been on the podcast too but he we went down for what is known as the raw which is a a state stage in a deer's life like mating time where they're behaving completely differently to what they normally would um and I've been successful in hunting deer before but this was a completely different kettle of fish uh and listening to their interactions the calls, um, the guttural sounds was, I couldn't believe I was in Australia. Um, it just, it was extraordinary. Big, big, majestic, strong animals um, just behaving badly, frankly, um, fighting <laughs> just in order to get control over everything. But um, we were successful and got a, you know, even though neither of us are 
um, trophy hunters. It's purely for the meat. Um, we shot an older stag um, who would have been probably nine years old and carted that out. And that was, you know, the meat is the deepest red and it's like, it's set like a rock. Like just, you know, you don't want to commodify everything, but it's extraordinary when there's something like that, an animal that's lived a, a pretty full life in the wilderness um, as much as Australia gets. Uh, and just the difference in the quality of the meat. I mean, quality not as in, you know, like the eating quality, as in just what it is, what it looks like. Um, uh, yeah, I'd love to do some analysis on it, but the structure is completely different to anything I've ever seen before. One of the interesting things that you've been part of as, as well was the Flinders Island Food and Crayfish Festival with some pretty amazing uh, chefs, James Files, Mark LeBroy, Matt Stone, Joe Barrett. Yeah. T- tell us about that festival and, and how that came about. Yeah. Um, oh, there's, there's, oh, there's a million funny stories around that festival, but it started with, um, I was, it was around the time of the 50 best and Christian Pugliese was in town um, and we were taken over to the island, um, not with a view to develop this festival, but just, I guess, as a, I hate to use the term, but the familiarisation of the, of the of the island itself because it's got a lot to offer. And it's really unique in so many ways because obviously tourism is an important part of the island, but, you know, you don't want swathes of people just landing on an island with 700 people in it that, that live there and affecting their lives too much. So there's a real sensitivity required around it. But um, we went over, as I said, around the time of the 50 best in Melbourne, what was that, like five years ago maybe? I think maybe even more. Um, and that that trip itself was hilarious because, you know, everyone's company, you know, Christian had been on the plane for probably 36 hours and landed and, you know, seen, been thrown into a room of 300 of your best mates. So you get excited. Um, and then to be sitting on small boats, you know, another couple of hours flight away um in in the middle of the ocean rocking away it's you know it's not good for your stomach um but that was like we we basically got thrown on the island to sort of see what the the capacity of it is, of was and we got connected with some really 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 interesting food stories from there um the mutton birding the um indigenous management of those lands um and then on the other side there's the um quite not industrial, but like larger scale cattle farming. Um, and yeah, so I sort of saw an opportunity and we put together, uh, there was an existing festival and I kind of stepped in and put together a group of no nonsense kind of people to just get back to absolute roots of cooking. Um, and the first year was about as wild west as it gets like i had very intentional decisions to cook using literally only what we've got around us so not using too much of a commercial kitchen more trying to be reliant on on fire um and whatever we could beg borrow or steal to to cook from um and you know we connected with the 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 local school and they were extremely helpful and Everybody was just chipping in to um, to provide us with what we needed to pull off this. It was basically one event. It was a, a lunch for 120 people that we ended up doing in a um, uh, in a 
sheep shearing shed. Um, yeah, so we were cooking on grates and gates and, um, you know, there's guys running down with pieces of, it was in the absolute torrential rain. We had, you know, 50k hour winds, but everybody's down there putting star pickets in to provide, you know, like have some corrugated iron to, she to, you know, get us away from the wind. And just it was just unreal. It was pretty crazy. Um, everyone thought, that I was nuts because that's what I was asking everybody to do. It's like, well, you know, where's our prep time? How can we, you know, how can I cook something in a convection oven? It's, we don't have anything available. Everything was on fire. So, yeah, and it, I was really, like, put a lot of thought into who went. And the thing is, there's a lot of people that have the capacity to do this. And that's what I love about the hospitality community is we do have um, great flexibility and, you know, adaptability in what we're doing. So, you know, just to sort of roll your sleeves up and get on with it. It's like, this is what we've got. We've got some amazing product. We've got a whole bunch of people that are there to help us pull this off. And we've got, you know, years of skill to be able to put it to task. Um, and we fed 120 people in a shearing shed using just product from the island. Um, and yeah, it was. You know, was it a world class meal? If you were to if you were to translate it to a restaurant, it would be pretty bizarre. But to be you know, but to be eating it where you were is unreal. Like it really was one of the hardest things and most rewarding things I've I've ever done. Um, and everybody was there that was there for the first year. Um, yeah, it's it's formed a pretty extraordinary bond um, that's ongoing. You're now back in uh, northern New South Wales and Chief of Food for Harvest, Barrio and Sparrow Coffee. Tell us about the role and, and what you're doing there. Um, so I guess um, personally I wanted to sort of step away from that being directly responsible for a dish, you know, that sort of... That's sort of, not celebrity, but the um, the way it's gone, where it's, you know, like I said about the, the, the flavour creations and everyone looks to a person for, for that being responsible. You know, it's, it's one person's input is, that's created that, which is completely false. It's always a huge amount of, it's team, it's the producer, it's, I hate to sound corny, but it's true. It's like, you might have like had a vision and you're putting that down, but man it changes drastically according to who's around you and um i am really mindful of not being in that position but i'm extremely passionate still about food environment and um hospitality so i've been speaking with the guys up here for a long time um regarding a similar role and it's, it's chief of food sounds a bit funny but we we're just trying to put a, a, a title on it and everyone kept going back to executive chef and you know we just tend to use different languages to romanticize something but it's you know you're in charge of the food in this venue that's what what it comes down to so um i've got head chefs there's people that i lean on creatively there's people that i lean on practically there's um it's a it's a relationship so it's like trying to figure out what works and it's all long term so we want this to have a um a long-term evolution so it's not directly derivative of one person's view it's sort of more about okay what can we achieve here um so it's just about trying to pull all those things together um and it sounds a bit cagey but 
it's kind of it's just about not being directly responsible or not being the person attributed to for that dish if that makes sense i want it to be i want it to be more than that what's it been like uh given the evolution of your own sort of food journey to have a greater connection to uh, the sea and the land and producers of, a, of an area that you're cooking in how, how is that relating to what you guys are doing um it's an ongoing thing i guess um can definitely get better and that's the problem i guess i always view things maybe i'm a bit cynical in that regard but i always look at what we're doing and always think we could do so much better um so but the platform has to be right first um, and you need to be able to build all these relationships in and make sure that they can continue. It's not about just trying to um, develop one-offs. It's about trying to develop a, a continuing food culture. Um, so we're pretty lucky up here in many regards, like the environment um, or the I guess the, you know, the temperature, you can grow tomatoes eight months of the year here. It's crazy. Um, the vitality of the soil is incredible. There's a really good um, uh, community of, of growers um, and producers up here that's really well supported by markets. Um, I'm not sure what that is, um, why that's, that's the case. I guess it's just been time um, spent on building those relationships. So we're really lucky to have all of that. Um, and I see our role as like really just supporting that as much as possible. So that can, can continue to grow. Um, and again, we're also lucky because we've been able to trade over this period. Um, I constantly getting the piss take out of me for my canny, uncanny timing, I guess. But, um, you know, to come up here and, and be able to trade while all my buddies in Melbourne and Sydney are, are, you know, like really restricted. It's pretty, like it's not, you know, it's not wasted on me. I'm, I, def, I see it as being a privilege. So um, I'm pretty intent on, you know, keeping the move, movement going forward. Um, and yeah, we're lucky. We're, we're very strongly patronised up here as far as like there's a lot of people that, are, you know, people come up to, to find those experiences up here. They, they do want to be part of um, you know, those connection experiences, food experiences. So, yeah, it's been interesting. Well, you've done some incredible things for our food culture over the years and um, very much looking forward to seeing the evolution that's going on up there at the moment that you're very much part of. Um, David, we've loved having you on Deep in the Weeds, an absolute honour to have you on and share your story. Um, please keep in touch and uh, no doubt we'll catch up again soon. Yeah, thank you. A real pleasure to be on. Thanks, Anthony. Good to speak. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we share the stories of Australia's HOSPO community, suppliers and producers in search of hope during this pandemic. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.